0: And you're very welcome along to another edition of The Staff Room. The Staff Room aims to be a half-hour program. We've yet to hit a half-hour, to be honest with you. We've gone above it. We've gone well above it in some cases. Today is an interesting one because today is, well, it's a nice one for me because I'm really getting my geek on at this stage. I'm joined by Joe Dale. Joe, you're very welcome along to The Staff Room.
1: Hi, Hassan. Absolutely pleasure to be here. Um, As you know, we've known each other for For many years, and I've known the SESI crowd for many years, so it's a real pleasure to be not only on the SESI Staff Room podcast, but also to be very geeky around audio recording setups. It's fantastic. I feel like I'm very much at home here.
0: Do you know, just a bit bit of inside baseball or behind the scenes, (laughs) this was meant to start at half past nine it ended up starting at 10 o'clock we eventually pressed record at half past 10 just simply getting levels right so i mean yeah find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life now we're not going to bore you with all the technicalities of uh, audio levels yet we may dig a bit deeper later on first of all joe For those of us, this is a tough one for any interviewer, I suppose, because I do know you, Joe. I've been at your presentations. I was at uh, SessyCon a while back when you were there. You blew me away when you arrived over with no laptop, just simply a device. And you said, look, at my keynote is on this device. This is how easy it could be. Can you tell me... How did you get to to that point? We're mad for joining the dots here and and figuring out the background or the journey, but how did you get from the UK to presenting at SESI? Let's let's start there. Okay.
1: Well, um, back in the day, I think it, I think my first Sesse was two thousand and eight, if I remember correctly. And the reason that that, that happened, I hadn't heard of, uh, to be absolutely frank, I hadn't heard of Sesse before. I read a blog post by the amazing Ewan MacIntosh, who I think had keynoted in 2007 or possibly 2008. So I um, I read his blog post and I thought, oh, Sessi, that sounds really interesting. I was I was really into my Twitter. I I was an early adopter, signed up in 2007, uh, started tweeting and connecting with like minded people, and of course. Back in the day, that blogs were absolutely king. I know that people don't really blog that much nowadays, but I remember reading you and McIntosh's blog and thinking, Sessie, that sounds really interesting." So I started obviously following the the Sessie account. I put in a proposal to speak. I was um, lucky enough to have it accepted. I came along to uh, it was a secondary school just outside Dublin in Talla, if I remember correctly. I had to get the tram there, and um, I was in. I was. I'd been put in this quite small sort of classroomy, lecture roomy type thing. In fact, I remember meeting conor galvin there or well, actually i've met conor before but i remember there's a famous photo which i think is on Flickr, of um him sort of introducing me and uh, both of us laughing about the fact you know he gave this very very kind introduction i said oh no pressure at all and then we've got this a photograph just at that point where we were both sort of smiling and um surprisingly there were so many people that wanted to come and see me speak that not everyone could get into the room and i think which is obviously very flattering and i think i'm right in saying i recorded the session as well i certainly used to record lots of sessions around that time um just the audio of the session then put it up on my uh, on my blog which um is is very very dead now i haven't updated it for nine years or something but uh but that's how it happened and then uh, i was very lucky enough to um to come back a few times i keynoted it a couple of years later And then I I, I came back um, when it was in Galway um, a couple of times. But as you say, I've not been for a few years. But when I was lucky enough to be able to watch the SESI virtual event uh, recently, it was so lovely to reconnect with people and sending a few direct messages to people in Zoom saying, love to meet up i'm actually coming to dublin um uh, on monday i've I've got um three separate courses which i'm running in dublin uh, and i've been to dublin a few times recently through a a company i'm representing well normally i'm I'm independent but at this this particular occasion uh, i'm i'm doing some work with a company in um in dublin so um yeah it'll be amazing to meet up with with people who I've known through SESI, so it's lovely.
0: Tell us about your background, Joe. I mean, is it a teaching background,
1: is it an IT background, for those who don't know? Okay, so basically I was a languages teacher for 13 years. I taught secondary school level for three years and then 10 years at middle school level. I went to my middle school in 1999, and as I said, I worked there for 10 years. So that was really when um, I developed an interest in technology, how technology can enhance language learning in particular, although I do do lots of cross curricular sessions now more and more actually as a result of the um, of the pandemic through webinars etc but that's my that's my background and then around 2002 i think it was i came across what was uh, what is now through so the linguiscope website which is, at the time was called bonjour.org.uk and i was blown aw- away by these sorts of hot potato type of activities those people who don't know hot potatoes it's like a, it's a multimedia suite you could download from um, a university in canada and you could design your own activities, things like you know, drag and drop and gap fills and, and that sort of thing. And I was really impressed by the uh, bonjour.org.uk website. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I was so keen. I, I asked my school if I could go on, on a course in uh, in Colchester, and it so happened the day, the the day that I went, it was snowing. And so the course, the course was cancelled. But there were two people who'd also come from Bolton, if I remember correctly, or from the northwest anyway, had come down. And then what we did was we went to, um, I think it was a McDonald's, if I remember correctly, and spent about two or three hours there just sharing tips and tricks about how to use technology in languages, which was amazing. And then I went back on the course. Actually, It actually ran uh, whenever it was a few months later, but that was that's how I started. And then through um, lots and lots of dedication and using the internet and connecting with people and being on Twitter a little bit later on. But I mean, from there, I sort of got into PowerPoint and all that sort of stuff. And then I, I sort of found my tribe, as it were, around 2006 or so when I started blogging and connecting with you know the, the world out there more rather than just being on different forums and what have you and picking up some ideas. But it was more when I got into the whole blogging and podcasting, again, through Ewan McIntosh, who really inspired me back in the day, I sort of found my feet, as it were, and found my tribe.
0: Yeah. And to be fair, Ewan McIntosh, if you don't recognize the name, you should. I think he inspires an awful lot of people, to be honest with you. Uh, Using technology in education, I mean, SESI is the Computers and Education Society of Ireland, and as it happens, 2023 will see 50 years, that's five zero years of technology in education or computers in education. When it comes to languages, you, you, you just mentioned it briefly there. How do you see the use of technology when using languages in education? How do you see the supports there?
1: Okay, so I think um, you can sort of divide the use of technology in languages into sort of two main areas. The first area would be that sort of receptive, independent um, language learning model using sites like uh, Quizlet and Duolingo and uh, Memorize. The way in which technology really lends itself to space repetition and retrieval practice and the fact that the, the students can learn on the move, they can learn, you know, when they're coming in uh, to school on the bus or when they're going for a walk and, and that whole uh, mechanistic type of learning, the way in which you can, um, you, you know, the algorithms can help you to remind you of the words you need to work on. You can have uh, these uh, types of streaks whereby you you gain points the more that you hit the the levels expected, the way in which you can Maybe if you're if you're not particularly good at uh, organizing yourself, then things like Quizless and so on and so forth will will really help you to to remind you of what it is that you need to work on. And the idea of of little and often, which which teachers have known about obviously for years and years and years, this idea of the the ebbing house learning curve that you can review the content that you're studying every every day, let's say, and by the end of the week, when you take your, let's say, final um test in class, then you should do better compared to if you try and cram everything at the last minute. So I think that From an independent learning point of view, the tools I mentioned already uh, are really helpful in uh, enhancing language learning by going through that, what could be regarded as quite boring mechanistic vocab practice or grammar practice, but it helps to forge new neural pathways in the brain by virtue of of the fact that you are practicing maybe much, much more using that sort of traditional methodology, but using the technology compared to if you were to do the same sort of thing on, say, on paper with pen. I can remember back in the day when I was using um, uh, hot potato activities to, to mention hot potatoes again, and I was finding that the students would be able to do, in some cases, say uh, ten or fifteen exercises of ten questions per exercise in the space of forty or fifty minutes. Whereas if they were to do the same sort of thing on paper, I know they wouldn't. They wouldn't do as much. It's just it's something about the computer screen, the technology, which really helps them to to get into the zone and to to really improve their understanding and complete many, many more activities in the same time. So that's one way, I think, of using technology to enhance language learning. And then the other way, which I'm particularly a fan of, is that idea of creativity and giving the children ownership of their work when they produce something using the technology to practice language learning. So it could be, for example, making videos or making podcasts or making animations or making animated GIFs and those sorts of things. When they're actually creating something, you know, at the the top of the Bloom's taxonomy, I think is something which is really, really exciting. And and it's something which I've been a huge fan of for many years. My first podcast was back in 2006. There we are. And it's a lot lot of fun.
0: Joe, you're always in the middle of a sentence. You're as bad as the other Joe I was talking to a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. That was I wanted to move on to the whole podcasting idea and something we struck on and not so much podcasting by definition so making a show to be huge to get followers. I mean from a student's point of view recording for output. I think the creative potential of that I think we're we're missing that in schools, the ability for a student to take a device, not necessarily an Apple device or I have an iPad here in front of me or whatever, but a device recording themselves. I think that from a language point of view, I saw um, two students in one of the first schools that I was in recording each other in French and then watching it back. And that never even entered my head to, oh, yeah, well, of course, you could record yourself in a different language, Do you know. So talk to me about podcasting. and where you are right now as regards podcasting. So podcasting in schools and then creating outputs as students or enabling people to create outputs.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, Joe Malloy was a you know big inspiration uh, to me back in the day, and still uh, an inspiration to me now. And it was so lovely to hear your conversation recently, which is of course why we why we got in touch. I, I said some nice things on Twitter about how much uh, I enjoyed listening to the conversation, listening to to Joe, um, you know, very sort of calmly and um, modestly talking about all the fantastic things that he was doing, and I. I'm sure you know I interviewed Joe back in the day, probably around 2007. I think I was incredibly into podcasting, and I interviewed uh, luminaries of the time uh, into educational podcasting, uh, Joe being one of the um, you know the, the people who are absolutely right up there doing um, well, doing podcasting before it was called podcasting, which is uh, something I, I love um, I love as a term. That's fantastic. So yeah, so as you were saying, you know, I was really inspired back in the day of the power of podcasting for language learning the whole recording and editing process. I was making podcasts with my children back in 2007, 2008. So I had a podcast which um, I put on Podomatic, which is still available, um, called com. And in those podcasts, what we did was we all had the same sort of format, which was some sort of introduction, and then practicing a particular grammar point, and then some sort of quiz. So that was the format. But then each um, small group of, say, two or three people they then came up with their own sort of ideas. So I gave them the opportunity of choosing the grammar point they wanted to talk about. They all chose the different grammar points and then they all recorded their audio. And that whole recording and editing process, I think, really helps to reinforce the ideas in their minds from from the point of view of the content reinforcing the grammatical content or obviously if they're speaking in in the target language helps them with their pronunciation, the fact they're hearing their own voice or their friend's voice again and again and again. So to me, it was a no-brainer right from the word go. What's been interesting is podcasting in education, uh, despite my efforts, Joe's efforts, other, other people's efforts, hasn't really taken off in the way that I thought it was going to, and I think that maybe that's still to do with the um, the learning curve of what you need to do to make a, a podcast.
0: That's the thing, Joe. That, and that's so. If we look back at Joe uh, Joe Malloy, which by the way we're going to have to get on again. And the reason it took us, me, and you so long to get connected today is because I didn't want the same issues that we had with Joe with, with audio. So that's that's one of the things to always consider when you're recording something. You want the audio to be right. You want the audio to be correct. So one of the things we covered with Joe and those champions like Joe and like yourself talking about podcasting is there's a certain magic still attached to it and not let's forget the term podcasting but recording so how do I record. And then you get bogged down with what microphone do I use and what camera do I, should I use a camera? And then there's the higher stuff that really we shouldn't be worried about, which is GDPR and recording another student and and that kind of thing. Now, I say and I very loosely say we shouldn't be worried about it. But of course, we should as long as the recording is deleted at the end of it. It's the process that I'm talking about. And people are so terrified, teachers, and they're always asking me, where do I start? Like, what's your advice on it? Because my advice is you have a thousand euro camera and microphone in your pocket. Use it. <laughs> but what's what's your take on it? Where Where should people start if they want to? And again, we say podcast, but if they want to record students for output so they can listen back to it, where do they
1: start? Okay, well, I think the whole GDPR issue obviously is really, really important. And it goes without saying, if you're going to record... Uh, students and put it online for other people to access then you need to have parental permission you need to make sure that all those boxes are ticked that's incredibly important but just from the point of view of of starting a podcast you know people talk about talk about the idea of all you need all you need is you know a, a microphone and some passion which i agree with but I also think that if you produce better audio quality compared to just a standard, let's say the inbuilt microphone on your laptop, if it's a Mac, you probably will sound really good because normally the standard inbuilt microphone on a Mac is actually very good. But if you were you know, serious about starting a podcast, I would recommend to you know invest in a dynamic microphone. I'm currently using the ATR2100X, which I really like because it's a dynamic microphone. I can get up close and personal to it. It sounds really good. You don't have the whole issue around if you're recording in a big room and you've maybe got a lot of um, echo and reverb on the recording, you won't have as much of an issue if you're using a dynamic microphone because you can get up close and personal. If you're using a condenser microphone then you're going to record you know, more of the sound quality in the room. You're going to pick up maybe on the room echo and things like that, whereas if you get nice and close, it can sound really good. That said as well, you can use your mobile mobile phone. You can use an app such as Road Reporter on uh, iOS. It actually works on Android as well, but I, I've heard uh, what I've seen on the reviews on the Android version. That's a few issues with it suddenly stopping recording, which is obviously a podcaster's nightmare. But on an Android phone, I would recommend RecForge 2, as a really nice app for recording in WAV quality, which is what you want to get the best quality possible. And then once you've got that, you can then upload it to a place like Anchor, which is anchor.fm, which is a completely free web tool for not only recording, editing, but also hosting your your audio I would absolutely recommend editing for the reasons I've talked about already it might be that you have some sort of podcasting club to do the editing say for the enthusiasts around um, which is basically what Joe Malloy um, uh, was doing back in the day and um, I think that's a really really good idea so get all the students to record their audio but don't necessarily get everyone to edit as well because it might be that it just takes too much time so I think based on my experience I think that uh, if you run a podcasting club that might be the best thing to do, and you sort of divvy out the different responsibilities for each person to be in charge of working out what interviews you're going to do, doing some editing, maybe sorting out some graphics for the um, for the episode for anchor. those sorts of things, but there's so there's so many things you can do. One one thing that I found really useful is um, I've joined uh, quite a few Facebook groups, particularly one called Podcast Editors Club, which is very geeky. It's you know it's it's full of people who actually make a living through editing podcasts. And as a result of that, my skills in Audacity have gone through the roof. So I'm actually programming my own macros now and assigning my own hotkeys. And those sorts of things, those tips and tricks really help with um, quickening your workflow. But if you're just talking about getting started, I would say download Audacity, watch a few YouTube clips, because there are lots and lots of them around how to get started with Audacity if you just want the basics. And um, make sure that your recording is not too high, so you're getting clipping and that sort of thing. And then just learn the basics of how to make some edits, how to make cuts, how to move tracks around, all those sorts of things to get started. But then if you want to take it to the next level, there are lots of other things you can do as well.
0: But I think it's important to mention, I mean, for those interested in starting on this journey, and we call it a journey, and it's very addictive, to be honest. Eddie. I've, <laughs> my background, like I'm. I told you this, and I think I may have mentioned this once or twice, my background when I started 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I was a sound engineer. I worked on radio and TV. That was my thing. And, and things have changed an awful lot. And to get back into it, it's very addictive. That creative side, to press record, to do a thing, to record it, to edit it. I think you won't be disappointed if you're a teacher out there and you're wondering where where do I start or how do I start. I genuinely don't think you will be disappointed if you take out your phone or if there's a device in school that's GDPR and press record, and see the output, and encourage the student to edit that. You don't have to put it up online or anything, just have it a small thing between the class. Because in America, high school radio is a big thing, whereas over here, not so much. And I believe over here, we're missing a trick with the school Podcast. I spoke recently to a school, I say recently, it was at Sessicon, it may have been about five, six years ago, to a primary school in Galway who said they're big into podcasting, big into print journalism, so they record an awful lot, but they mostly type up their work. And anybody that comes into the school gets recorded. So if it's the man delivering the oil, there's a child there with a microphone in front of him, and now, what are you doing and where are you coming from? And that ability, the who, what, where, when, why of getting information out of people is a skill. So what I'm saying, what I'm using an awful lot of words to say very little, what I'm saying is you won't be disappointed if you take a device in school, call it the podcast device, whether it be an iPad or, or a school device, stick a microphone on it. I bet you, now Joe is Joe's going a bit, don't go there, but I bet you, you stick a microphone on that, headphones. I promise you within six months, you'll be buying a microphone and headphones, same as what Joe was talking about.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think you made a really important point there around um, the idea of recording, um, where you put the recording. I think that there are lots of people who talk about the idea of podcasting who don't necessarily want to sort of put it out there so it's available to be downloaded on, say, you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or what have you. And it is possible to do that. You could, for example, just take the audio and put it into, say, Google Drive, or OneDrive, or I saw a really nice example of this recently, whereby there was um, a former teacher who was doing some work with some primary schools in Scotland, in Dumfries and Galloway, and he was using Soundtrap, he works for Soundtrap, a guy called Alan Cameron, who's a very very nice guy, We're very lucky to meet him face-to-face this week at the BET show. And um, he was doing some really interesting storytelling work using Soundtrap, which is a little bit like Audacity, but, but web-based. But he wasn't publishing it as a podcast. He was putting it up onto Microsoft Sway. So for those people that don't know, Microsoft Sway allows you to embed multimedia really nicely all in the one space. And when you upload uh, an MP3 file, it turns it into a player automatically. So what he'd done was he'd done this lovely storytelling with the students whereby they were telling these stories. It was all done in English, but there's... There's no reason why it couldn't be done in, in the target language. And then he also got them to design some pictures and he took some photos and put them onto the Sway as well. And so it was it was all part of one multimedia package, which I thought really worked well. So listening to this, if you're worried about the idea of um, it being too public and putting out um, the podcast for the whole world to listen to, then it might be that you just want to do all the things we talked about, the whole creative process of recording and editing, but actually just host the um the audio somewhere more private, like a Google Drive or, or OneDrive. To me, what's most important in a way, going back to the uh, what I talk about, the two ways in which you can use technology, is the actual creative process of producing a podcast. To me, certainly languages, that's the real power of how it's going to help you with your language learning. But obviously, if you're publishing to a real audience, which is something, again, Joe Malloy talks about a lot, that's incredibly motivating for young people. And therefore, that can encourage them to improve the standard of their work in general because they know that they're publishing to a real audience. And to me, that's one of the the fantastic things around podcasting. But as a teacher, if you're worried about it being a bit too open, as it were, and anyone can subscribe, just stick it up on Google Drive or OneDrive or somewhere that is more private. To me, it's all about just getting the children to produce the content and then think carefully about Who is the ideal audience for that content?
0: I like the idea of setting up a club to do it. And again, that's something I'm going to be talking to Joe again about. But just have it all of a sudden, it's a process. It's a group process. Again, it's back to the whole, it's the creative process. There's only so many times you can say creative process. This is a creative act. Joe, I want to talk to you about Twitter. Twitter and education. There are some people who shy away from Twitter, shy an awful lot away from Twitter, and there are others who dive in. You're one of the few who you've taken Twitter head-on, like, I don't shy away from it, but I know that it can be a toxic environment. However, I have just shy of maybe a thousand followers, but they're all teachers and they're all educators. And if I want to talk about something to do with edtech, my instinct is straight to Twitter Talk about it, and I don't tend to talk about. I, I might give out about the ad phone company on Twitter as well. But other than that, it's education is where I go for Twitter. You and I, I have here. You have thirty three thousand followers. So I mean, what are you doing on Twitter? How are you engaging your audience on Twitter? And how do you find it? What advice do you have for people as well?
1: Well, um, yeah, I have got thirty three thousand seven hundred followers now. Okay, Beyonce. <laughs> which is a bit crazy if you if you think about it if they were all in the same room at the same time but as with everyone i started um with no followers and i just i just built it up from there i think um what i w- what i would recommend for people who haven't engaged with twitter or maybe people who want to get more followers, what I always used to suggest was connect with like-minded people, see what they're tweeting about, maybe do a bit of piggybacking on some of their followers, join the conversation, find a hashtag which um, meets your your interests. I created the uh, the MFL Twitterati hashtag, which um, has been used by language teachers all over the world for, for many, many years. I also would recommend creating a, a Twitter list. I've got a number of different Twitter lists, which, um, which I manage, but the from a language teacher point of view, the one that I'm most proud of is the MFL Twitterers list, which has about 5,000 members and it has about 2,200 uh, subscribers. So it means that if I add anyone new to that list, it means that um, they immediately get an audience. So what I've found I've had to do is a bit like when you're pruning a plant because you're at the limit of uh, 5,000 per list, when I come across someone new that I want to add to the list, what I have to do is I have to go through the existing members. And if someone hasn't, say, tweeted for a year, for whatever reason, I'll take them off the list and I'll add a new person. Now, that was that was something I was doing on a regular basis when the limit was, I think it was 500, if I remember correctly. And then Twitter changed the algorithm for that or changed that's how it worked a number of years ago. And suddenly we had 5,000 and it felt like a a really, really big number. But then all of a sudden, over many years, I'm actually at that stage again, or I have been at that stage for quite a long time now, about having to, again, take people off the list, add people on the list. So if it was completely open-ended, if you could have unlimited members, we'd probably have 10,000 members of that list. But the reason I talk about this idea of pruning is it means if you're taking people off that haven't tweeted for like a year or so, it means you're making the community stronger and stronger and stronger. So I I would suggest that um, for people starting... They want to develop uh, you know, a good following or they want to find their tribe, as it were, then to follow a few people who, are, who they know are tweeting things that they like and they agree with and, and so on and so forth. And then they uh, they piggyback on some of those people's followers. So that's what I did. But I suppose because I was such an early adopter, I signed up in May uh, 2007. It felt a little bit like the Wild West when we first started. And there weren't that many language teachers who were on Twitter. But I certainly connected with like-minded people Joe Malloy and, and so on and so forth and it was all you know all around you know this new thing called Twitter wow this is really cool and and the whole teach me movement and again you and Macintosh how he uh, kick-started that in the Jolly judge pub in in Edinburgh in 2006, and then at the Learning Teacher Scotland event as well, again in 2006, when I believe he had a sponsor for uh, for wine, so that everyone was a bit merry. And I can remember the BET um, Teach Meets back in sort of 2007, 2008, when, let's say, there was quite a lot of drink uh, consumed at the time. But but those were, those were heady days. It was incredibly exciting to meet people who you've been connecting with online, to meet them face-to-face, and to have those conversations. That's something certainly I've missed during the The pandemic, the ability of connecting with people who who you follow on Twitter, who you know you actually you know make 3D as it were, you actually see them face to face and all those all those fun connections you can make that way. One thing that I found really amazing recently is the the whole thing around Twitter search operators, which I don't know Hassan if you've heard of. I haven't actually. It's been an absolute game changer. It's something I can't remember how it came up on my radar. It must have been some sort of as I like to do, you know, Twitter searching to find out a certain answer to a particular question. Anyway, I came across this idea of Twitter search operators. So if you go to the advanced Twitter search, you'll see that you can do things like um, doing a search starting at a certain date or finishing at a certain date or people who who you're following and so on and so forth. But actually, this whole idea about Twitter search operators, what you can do, if you do a search for Twitter search op- operators, you will find various blog posts. And essentially what they are, they're little codes that you can include in your Twitter search, just in the standard Twitter search, not using advanced search. And they really help to find the gold, find the good stuff. So to give you an example, if I wanted to do a search and the only results would be people who I'm following, what I would do is I would put filter colon follows. And then whatever I write afterwards, I know that anything that is going to come up is going to be people who I'm following. So for example, at the bet show, I did filter colon follows, space, bet. And it meant that I could immediately see who I was following or who was following me were at the bet show, which was fantastic. I could then connect with those people, send them a direct message saying, oh, do you want to meet up, et cetera. That's one idea. Another idea is if you can't remember who tweeted about something, but you know that it was around a conference hashtag, you could put that conference hashtag in, and then you could put in filter, colon, media. And you know that anything that comes up, it could be an image, it could be a video, it will appear within that search. Another thing which I find fascinating is if you want to find out the first time that a hashtag was ever used, for example, a Sessicon, if you wanted to find out the first time that's ever been used, all you have to do is put in until, colon, and then the date. You have to put the date in a certain format and then the hashtag. And if you keep searching and changing the date each time, you can basically come back to the point where you find out the first time that hashtag was ever used, which is fascinating. I just find that sort of thing... That's amazing. Because obviously everything's archived. All the tweets are archived. And another thing in relation to lists, I was talking about the MFL Twitterers list. Each list has its own code, its own number. So I think it's probably about seven figures or something like that. So what you can do again is you can put in filter, colon, list, and then the number. And then you know that anything that you search for will be in that list. So anyone that's tweeted who's part of that list, that result will come up. So once you start thinking about it and you put together different combinations of different search operators, it can be absolutely fascinating how you can find out Uh, information another interesting one as well you can do things like locality you can do like near an area so let's say there's been some sort of thing that's happened in a certain place let's say you can then do near such and such a location and you know you're only going to get tweets that are actually on the ground in that local location wow or another one which is really cool is around favoriting so you can put in min underscore faves colon and then a figure like 10 or 100 or a thousand what have you so you might do a search for a tweet or a hashtag or a word, put in min underscore faves colon a thousand, and then you'll find or whatever the number might be, you'll then find the most popular tweets around a particular tweet that's been put out there. Or you can find out what is the most popular tweet that you've tweeted. So you can put in, you can put in, for example, from colon Joe Dale, and then minimum faves, and then you can work out what's been the most favorited tweet you've ever tweeted, and just those sorts of things. They're very, it's very geeky. But if you're into Twitter and you're into that sort of granular searching, they're amazing. So what I've done is i found all these different articles around Twitter search operators. I use Google Keep to make lots of notes and to-do lists and what have you. So I've just basically put them all into an individual Google Keep and I've just had to play around with different ideas of thinking, oh, I wonder when MFL Twitterati hashtag was first used. And I've been able to work it out by using these different search operators. So I would just like to, to put that into the podcast as something which um, I think would be very, very useful for those people into Twitter. Just do a search for Twitter search operators, and then you'll find a blog posts that have basically listed all of them out. And, and also on another one which came out recently was um, this idea of, you know, with Twitter Spaces, whereby you can have like, um, you know, the idea around social audio, the way that you can launch a Twitter space chat, and then you can hear from people from literally anywhere in the world, there's now a filter option for spaces. So if you put in filter colon spaces, and then a keyword, whatever you tweet about, it means that it will come up in someone who's tweeted about a Twitter space, which might be then a conversation you want to then listen to as a result of that. So it's just fascinating stuff i'm a bit geeky about this sort of thing but i just find it really really interesting how you can use the twitter search operator as a way of taking your twitter searching to the next level it's like magic dust really it's, it's amazing <laughs> excellent cool cool but to answer your question it's it's just been it's just been a huge amount of work and, it, and it's through all the things that i do blogging organizing webinars tweeting retweeting people as well and then essentially tweeting content that people like. So I have a large number of tweets which are to do with languages and technology, which is which is my thing, my passion, my expertise. But I also occasionally tweet more personal things about my seven-year-old son, for example, which I've always referred to as the munchkin. I have said his actual name occasionally on, on Twitter, but I tend to, just from an e-safety point of view, I suppose. And I think also as well, just to finish with this bit as well, I also think that being authentic is incredibly important. If you come across as authentic, which I try to be as much as possible, then that's another way of getting a good number of followers because people can spot it very quickly if you're not being authentic.
0: I like the idea of the munchkin. (laughs) My son... I was doing a thing. I used to do a thing called um, Daddy Daycare. When his mother'd go to work, I'd do stuff with Lieutenant Commander Squishy Face. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, but I thought that was lovely, and I thought the engagement. But I, wa- I did get an awful lot of kickback from people saying, "Oh, I don't, I don't know if you want to be doing that." But it's about the audience, and y- you use this term quite a bit, and I like it, and I'm going to stick with it. It's finding your tribe. If you find your tribe on Twitter. Twitter can be a very safe, a very learning friendly environment because it's one of the things that I spotted about Twitter. And we're going to talk about Teach Me so in a second. If a teacher has a question to ask and there's no forum, there is the SESI forum. Just say SESI forum is there. But if they want to go to Twitter, they can and they can ask. And if your tribe is on Twitter with you, you'll get a response straight away. I mean, I was very excited about this interview with you. You pipped me at the post. You put it up on Twitter. That was your thing. When I finish this, when it's edited, I'm going to go to Twitter, not because I'm advertising the fact that I've done an interview, but because I'm excited about the interview. And that's the tribe that's there. They're excited about stuff they're doing in education, uh, technology and education. Now, I can't let it slide Teach Meats. Now, Mags um, Almond, I'm going to get her on the SESI staff room. Mags, just a warning, a friendly warning. Teach Meats. Talk to me about Teach me.ets
1: Teach meets, great question. Okay, so teach meets. Um, my first teach meet was, to be honest, it was probably the best teach meets. They were probably the first ones that I went to. So the early days, meeting people like Mags coming to Sesi as well, getting very very excited about the idea of being able to present new ideas for either two minutes or seven minutes. Uh, lots of the ideas were around ed tech. There seemed to be new, you know, web two o that term that we don't really use nowadays. Web two o tools were coming in thick and fast there were lots of interesting things and what was amazing about it was you could learn so much in in a short you know 7 minute presentation compared to maybe watching a whole 45 minute presentation in a, in another conference the teach me to me was what it was all about and where it was at and, you know, where the movers and shakers were. And I can remember again at the Bet Show back in those those early days of walking around the Bet Show and it being very commercial, all to do with selling product. And the thing that I really enjoyed was the Teach Meet, because that's when the actual teachers were there talking about, as you mentioned earlier, about their passions and what they absolutely loved. And that just came across to me as something which um was incredibly important and really Really lovely. So as a result of all those teach meets and all those Twitter conversations that happened through the idea of a back channel, in other words, people were tweeting when the events were happening. So not only could you enjoy that when you were there watching live, but you could also pick up on it if you were at home. And I can remember the early days of the flash meetings that uh, Joe Malloy was talking about as well. John Warwick, who was uh, instigating in setting up lots of flash meeting links for different um, educators um, through the Open University and being able to watch a few teach meets at the Scottish Learning Festival, for example, when I was in my study on the Isle of Wight, to be able to follow it, watching it live via the webcam, and also watching the the back channel on on Twitter. So I think there's a whole sense of reasons why, for me, teach meets were absolutely amazing thing to be involved in. I think for some reason they have proved to be less popular nowadays. I noticed at the bet show, for example, yesterday, the numbers of people at the teach meet were far reduced compared to. In the past, now, I appreciate that we're living through a pandemic and maybe that's the main reason. But in general, over the last few years, when I've been following the Teach Meets on BET, there's been fewer and fewer people in general coming along, which has been really interesting. I don't know why, why that is or what Mags would think about that. I'm sure you'll, have to, you'll be able to ask her when she comes on to the Sessy Starframe podcast. But I still think this idea of just having a room, getting a lot of people together in a room and getting people to share their their expertise is still is incredibly powerful. I suppose as a result of the pandemic people have been doing all their sharing online on Twitter on Facebook groups but that that visceral nature of being in the same room with somebody and having having a, a wee chat about issues that you're grappling with it can be such a fantastic shortcut to get to a solution compared to what happens if you're just trying to you know search for an answer if you actually talk to an expert either face to face ideally or virtually then you can really get the really find a solution to something that you're both passionate about and interested. And, And as a result of Twitter, et cetera, I've been able to connect with thousands and thousands of people all over the world and have these sorts of amazing pedagogical deep conversations quickly and easily, which has just been a life changer for me. And I wouldn't be able to do what I do without these back channels and social media and so on and so forth.
0: So I'm going to put something to you, Joe, and I'm going to put it to Mags as well. Do you think Teach Meets in their traditional sense has had its day? So now, before you, before the the world implodes, <laughs> I don't mean that they're over. I mean when I went to a teach meet, my first teach meet, there was a group of teachers, a small group of teachers, talking about just talking about technology and education. And then there was the association between technology and education and the teach meet. So they were techies talking about how to enable technology and education. But now that people have a better handle. On using technology in education. Do you think possibly the feel of the Teach Meet is being, well, we don't need to go to a Teach Meet because we know about tech? Now, what are your thoughts on that? Am I completely wrong?
1: I think that's to me one of the key questions at the moment around how teachers' ICT savviness has improved as a result of the necessity of, for example, emergency remote teaching at the start of the pandemic. I think that. And I would love to know other people's opinions about this as well. I think the divide between the people that knew a lot about edtech compared to the people who had to learn a lot about edtech as a result of the pandemic situation, I think that divide has closed. I think there are still people who are just not interested and want to you know, ditch Microsoft Teams or whatever it might be and go back to what they're used to, which I do understand. And I think it's very important that we're all kind to each other during this pandemic because everyone's going through their own personal situations for sure. But I think to me, one of the I, I would never say that Teach Meets have had their day, but I do think, based on what I've said already, I think that certainly the bet teach meet was always in a way that, you know, the quintessential teach meet or the high put the gold standard. And it's just been interesting before the pandemic and in the one that happened yesterday, the fact that there do seem to be Fewer people coming along to those sorts of teach meets and the buzz is different, I think. But I loved following the, the Twitter hashtag. I loved watching remotely what was happening. And it was really amazing to see friends of mine, uh, you know, presenting. But to me, one of the key questions now, which was mentioned a few times at SesiCon, was how do people move from here in relation to a blended approach? Are we going to see more people using the technologies that they used during the first part of the pandemic, maybe for the first time? Are they going to carry on doing these sorts of um, things, that using these sorts of tools? Are we going to see more Zoom meetings instead of people all getting on trains and cars and all the rest of it and going to a, a physical place and, and having an hour meeting? Are people more ready now because they're so used to using zoom and i would imagine most people have got set up with you know a decent microphone and headphones and it's not a problem now are people going to be doing more remote meetings as opposed to you know all get on trains and all the expense of that and the rest of it are we going to see that as a change and i think to me that's one of the key the key questions and are we going to see not necessarily revolution but evolution on the use of educational technology which is what we're all passionate and interested about And I would certainly hope that there will be a change in mindset around this. I remember in various presentations I was doing right at the back of the beginning of the pandemic, there was um, a quote which I was using a lot by a head teacher in a British international school in Rome who was talking about the idea that one of his hopes, or the silver lining, if you like, as a result of the pandemic is that teachers who were maybe reluctant for whatever reason to use educational technology would change their mindset as a result of having to use it. And that's my hope as well. I would hate the idea of all the progress that's been made and the new tools that people have learned how to use through necessity will all just be ditched and they'll just go back to old ways. I would hope there'll be some sort of blended approach that would now be adopted. I mean, what, what do you think, Hassan, on that question?
0: Well, look. I, I, I mean, thank you very much for bouncing it back to me because I don't know. I was thinking, just listening to you talking, I was going, I don't know. So there's two, there's two things just to cover. There's the teach meet side of it. Teach meets over here exploded. Everybody was having. There was lots of teach meets. Those pockets we organized teach meet here in Mayo that was a huge success. And I have to laugh. It was organized on a Friday at eight o'clock by myself. And I, well, I remember going into a staff room in my local school here and. They said, on a Friday, do you think you're going to get a group of teachers on a Friday to go to an education center? And as it happens, we did. We were a huge success. Now, by huge, we had 20 people there. I was delighted with that because I had already paid my family, five of them, to sit at a table so I wouldn't be by myself. So the evolution of the teach meet is, I think, something to watch out for. The exchange of ideas. So those involved from the start of teach meet. Understand teach meets to be an exchange of ideas. You mentioned their deep pedagogical discussions. Teach meet is not just about technology; it's just one aspect. What technology are you using? So that that's one thing. I also understand that over here, the teach meet idea has moved from staff room to staff room. So now it's a thing at the meeting. At the meeting before break, they'll have people will. Give me three minutes of something that you're doing in your classroom that you feel others might benefit from. The, I think the evolution of the TeachMeet is something definitely to watch out for. I think it's important to remember that TeachMeets is about an exchange of ideas and not about the technology in education, which brings us nicely onto what you were talking about there. And the fear I have with getting over, getting through COVID is that teachers are going to go, OK, that's it. It's done. It's over. Back to normal dump everything that we've learned. And I think we lose a trick if we do that. I think there's big talk of we've reimagined education. Have we reimagined education? Well, yes, we have a little bit reimagined education. But will that continue with us? And what will that look like? So the reimagined education, I don't know. I don't know, Joe. I see teachers in schools using technology that have never used technology and who are terrified to use it and who are embracing it. But I also see those who are going, let's go back to the photocopier. Photocopier is there, it's easy. Send a hundred copies to the photocopier. Distribute paper, (laughs) look. Do you know, I see a bit of that as well. I'm curious to see, and I think teachers being teachers, educators being educators, reflection is key. So I think we need to draw a line in the sand whenever it is, and we need to go right. Let's reflect. Let's write down what we've learned and let's see if we can take the good parts and dump the rest of it.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that is absolutely my hope. And I was going to I was going to mention as well that. At the start of the pandemic, I organised over 140 webinars for the Association for Language Learning that we referred to as TILT, which stands for Technology and Language Teaching, along with my friend Helen Myers, who's the chair of the London branch of, um, of AWL, We both sort of came up with the same idea at the same time, which was to put together some webinars to support not only AWL members, but anybody who's interested in uh, in coming along and learning about the use of different um, technologies to enhance language learning. And I think that as a result of doing all those webinars, the recordings of which are on my YouTube channel, as well as on um, the AWL London website, was a fantastic way of generating conversation around what are the best tools for doing X, Y, and Z. And I feel through the MFL Twitterati community, which is obviously you know, the, the main way in which I connect with people um, online, I would say that as a result of doing all those webinars, that conversation has got bigger and bigger and it has absolutely had a, an impact on people's practice and the fact that all those webinars were recorded means that people can then go back and watch those and can remind themselves all the amazing work that was happening and also from a a human point of view as well. I think that at the beginning of the pandemic, certainly when people were feeling very worried and scared to have, let's say, 100 people in a Zoom call at the same time watching a, a presenter and then having the, the the back channel running at the same time. And then afterwards, people saying, wow, I loved your presentation. I thought this was amazing. I've tried this idea. And and that whole sort of reviewing of the content and then people coming back to the same presenter a week later and saying, oh, I tried this ad- idea out. It. it worked really well. That's been happening for years. But I think that as a result of the pandemic the conversation is wider there were more people talking about a whole range of different formative assessment tools or ways of um, making animations whatever it might be and and people who are interested in this area or as a result of the pandemic become more interested in this area become more, more and more hungry for the latest things so for example you might uh, see on a Facebook group post or on Twitter. Are there any alternatives to Kahoot? My children are getting bored with it. Any other suggestions? Then people say, "Oh, have you tried LookIt or have you tried Quizzes or whatever it might be." So that's been really exciting to see that. But I think that the yeah the conversation has moved forward, and certainly amongst the people that oh, I'm connected with, and I appreciate it's a bit of a uh, a goldfish bowl that the people involved in that in that community. Absolutely, um, there's going to be a big impact moving forward and, and people are going to be using technology more. But I just, I suppose my fear is that lots of teachers will reject the things they've learned through lockdown and through the pandemic when we had like in a hybrid approach and they will just go back to their their ways. And I think that will be a missed missed opportunity. But I hope I hope I'm wrong in that.
0: Joe Dale, thank you very much for joining us in the SESI staff room. Again, I open up the SESI staff room all the time with saying that it's a half hour program. Is it really an hour in? Is it, is it a half hour program? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for joining us in the SESI staff room, Joe.
1: You're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. I do like to have a wee leather, as you know, and I think that One of the great things about podcasting is that you can have a real conversation compared to say radio when you know, you've got a limited amount of time that you can talk about a certain topic. The lovely thing about podcasts, which is one of the I've always loved it for many, many years, is you can actually have a real, authentic conversation. That's what this is all about. And the fact that we're capturing it, this is a unique conversation. We can put it out and share it to the wide world is it's a real privilege, I think. So thank you so much, uh, Hassan, for finding the time to invite me on the, on the Sessi staff room. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to reflect on all these really, really important issues around life during the pandemic and maybe after the pandemic, whatever that might look like. So thank you so much for the opportunity.